Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Paul Menefee. Paul Menefee is a barista and head of education with Argotype Coffee, working to grow coffee knowledge and improve the lives of those involved in the coffee industry. Paul believes that service industry workers and consumers together can improve the lives of people everywhere. Paul has also worked for multiple community development and anti-sex trafficking organizations across the world, including Sacramento, California, Portland, Oregon, and Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Paul has a bachelor's degree from Ozark Christian College, where he studied leadership and international relations. Paul lives with his wife, Mariah, in Omaha, Nebraska. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. Tell me about your childhood. Well, I was not expecting that question, of all things. Um, but no, I mean, I grew up as a military kid, so my dad was in the Marine Corps. My dad's from Columbia, Missouri. Well, it's near there. My mom grew up in Kansas City. Through that, I was born in Kansas City, lived in Japan for quite a few years, went to South Korea, Hawaii, St. Louis. My dad ended up getting out of the military, um, got hired by Citibank, and of all places, they moved us to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So their headquarters there, South Dakota has, is one of two states without laws against interest rates. So there's like 30-some credit cards based out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So we were there, and he was uh, one of the head mainframe computer programmers for Citibank internationally. So he worked nights, and I grew up there. So I moved from all these international cities and ended up in the least international place you can imagine, and a very miserably cold change from most places I had been living. So yeah, after that, I went to college at K-State for a year and a half or two, and I thought I was going to go for sound and light engineering for Broadway production, and then I dropped out, and I moved to Sacramento and worked for an inner city after-school kids program and kind of went on from there. We, we've moved from Japan to Hawaii to St. Louis, obviously a clear, definable arc to that. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really connected places. So we, 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 have, to, we have to jump back, and okay. um, I, I have to ask you to unpack a little bit what are the experiences you remember of growing oh, up yeah. uh, in Japan, Hawaii, and perhaps how you adapted to what I imagine might be a more stereotypical childhood in St. Louis. Right. So I was in Japan for three and a half years. Uh, we got moved to South Korea. Um, I was super young. So the memories I have of Japan are very vague. Like I remember going to the beach. There was this, we had this epic play place on the side of a, like a cliff that went down to the beach. They have like beautiful sand there. It's considered kind of like the Hawaii of Asia, like paradise for military kids, basically. <laughs> um, and so I don't really remember a ton of that. The thing I do remember basically that affected kind of the rest of my life is my parents loved Japanese culture. So if the military hadn't moved him, my parents would have never wanted to leave. Uh, while there, my mom actually did a lot of like English as a second language teaching. She's a teacher anyways. And she also picked up, she loved cooking. So she actually trained under a sushi chef and did a kind of stuff that, like that. So me being this, you know, kid growing up in the Midwest, I thought it was normal for 
kids to eat sushi on a weekly basis, if not multiple times a week, until I got a little older and started realizing none of my friends had ever even had sushi, and my mom made it home. <clears throat> that really impacted my life. After Japan, really quick, we were only in South Korea for like a month, we got restationed to Hawaii, and we were there for another three months maybe, and got restationed to St. Louis. Basically, my father got moved wherever there was data centers or he needed to fix big computer programming stuff. Really, I don't remember a ton of living in those places. I have a ton of pictures and have vague memories of beaches. That's pretty much it. And then St. Louis, we were there for a year and a half. That I kind of remember because that was the first time in my life I remember being around family because my family's from Missouri. And then after that, we moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So I was five, into four or five by the time I was there. The biggest thing that I think that impacted my childhood is I never grew up anywhere near family. Um, so the closest I lived was St. Louis for a year, and that was five hours, four and a half hours, and then South Dakota was nine and a half hours. So, It seems to me then that maybe living in those places you've described weren't directly affecting because you were so young that the experiences you remember were somewhat limited. Mm. But it may be that the family environment that you found yourself in really influenced you because they brought with them so many, um, one might think of them as exotic influences, and some might think of them as just just worldly and, and other. Yeah. But also you were absent from family too for a while. So Definitely. You, extended family. Yeah, no, so it's interesting um, when people talk about grandparents or things like that or where they want to live, they they always come back to family. And um, since since I left high school, that's never been an issue for me because when I leave my family, we may not talk for months at a time. But when we see each other, we're just back to where we were. But I don't really miss them ever because I guess growing up all over, there was a lack of a sense of home for me. And so even South Dakota, I can go back and I have great memories, but it doesn't feel like home. And so what I've learned since leaving that is home is wherever you make those relationships, wherever you make that important Another part of that, moving all over, it affected my parents so much because my parents, having grown up in very conservative Southern families, um, after they got out of there, something they realized that was extremely important to them was to expose my sister and I to any and all cultures they could. So my friends growing up, you know, they'd go to Florida or California or the wealthier ones would go to Costa Rica or Jamaica. <laughs> and my family, we went camping and to the inner city and went to eat at any ethnic restaurant you possibly could. So we never stayed in nice hotels. If anything, we'd sleep in our car or a little motel or camp is usually what we do because my dad loved the outdoors. Um, and we'd go to the Korean restaurant in downtown Minneapolis or we'd drive 20 hours to southern Texas and do whatever, but we always drove and we took our time so that we could see different cultures. Um, my One of my dad's biggest things was to make sure I wasn't locked into some very white conservative community because he realized when he got out of that how much he had missed out on. You talked about going to college, so I'd like you to talk about that, but also talk about the choice you made to go and, and to not conclude that particular field of study, and also any pressure maybe that your family put on you specifically, I'm thinking of your dad, to maybe follow in his footsteps mm -hmm. and uh, sign up into the military. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. Actually, I've gotten, at times, no one in my family, extended family-wise, has ever said they were disappointed necessarily. 
but it's very obvious. I'm first generation in my dad's side of the family to not either be a farmer or be military for a long time. I actually can't remember another relative that hasn't. And so that was a little disappointing. Growing up, my dad, I always felt like I was being prepared for the military. He had no expectation, I don't think. But I thought I was going to be military my whole life until it came out that I had asthma. And then I realized I couldn't do anything in my mind. As a kid, I couldn't do anything cool in the military. I could only sit behind a desk or something. (laughs) And so um, that kind of changed my mind on that. But no, my parents actually were very different. I grew up, so growing up where I did in South Dakota, I was actually outside Sioux Falls in Brandon, which is where a lot of the doctors and the wealthy families live. And so most of my friends were pressured to go to all these really high-end schools and everything like that. And I always did really well in school. So I was always testing with those people, grades with those people. But my mom didn't care whatsoever where I went because she knew she didn't do necessarily what she was expected to do. And living abroad and knowing the people they had known, they knew that people didn't have one specific thing they should do. Um, So when I announced that I was going to college, I actually went to K-State and Manhattan Christian College first. And they said, okay, and didn't really ask what I was going for. They just said, sure, yeah, if that's where you think you need to go. Um, They trusted my judgment. And so I went there for, at first, I thought was going to be sound and light engineering. And then after a year and a half, so basically I did my gen eds and I dropped out. And then even then my parents were like, okay, if that's what you want to do. So that's that was really interesting. My parents were really supportive because of the fact that we were all we had and we didn't have that whole network and there was no expectation. Because even my dad being in the military, uh, my family kind of wrote it off as, oh yeah, you're in the military, so we're cool with that. We don't get the whole computer thing because he was a nerd and he was the first one to be that. They just kind of focus on the fact that he was in the military. So even now, going back now that I'm in coffee and I've done community development and international work, my family writes it off as different things. They'll say, oh, you work in coffee. What does that mean? (laughs) Because they live in small town Missouri. And so I'll get asked like, oh, do you work for Folgers or do you work for Starbucks? And I'll be like, no, but sure. (laughs) Like whatever you need to think that of. And they're like, oh, you're doing community development, anti-trafficking work. So basically you were a missionary. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Like whatever you, like however you need to fit that. But yeah, there's never been pressure from my family, at least my immediate family. So what motivated you to drop out? And then what happened after that? Yeah. So during college, I actually took a, oh, after my freshman year, I went to Sacramento And it was supposed to be a really short week long thing. It ended up turning into like a three and a half month thing um, because I decided I didn't want to move on. And I stayed, I worked with this organization that was doing inner city after school kids programs. It's in this neighborhood called Oak Park in the middle of Sacramento. Now it's really weird. I went back like a year and a half, two years ago, and it's now become this gentrified hipster area. But when I was there, I just, my memories were crazy. I, I showed up. And it was like nothing I thought it would be. It was, I mean, I'm prefacing this with coming out of living in South Dakota my most of my life. And then going there and it was, I heard of California as this beautiful place where all these people have like their dream lives. And I roll in in a minivan to this place that's just fully run down. And there's like everyone's lawn is dead and there's just kind of mayhem going on at all times. And I was like, well, I was 18, so I was like, whatever, this is going to be great. Or 19, I guess. Um, 
and then like our second night there, our van got shot up in the middle of a gang fight. And uh, that kind of started the summer. And turns out three days in, we found out that we were actually living on the same street as the headquarters of the fourth of new bloods for California, Sacramento area. And then a block away was the headquarters of the hell's angels of California. So it's kind of a rough area. Like the hell's angels is this, they bought up the three houses and built a compound and it's these white biker dudes. And then the rest of the neighborhood is fourth Avenue bloods. Um, so I was the, myself and two people that were working with me were the only white people in like 30 blocks. And I'd never experienced that in my life. And, and then across like the main street that was like five blocks away was this huge Mexican gang. And so there was always fighting and craziness going on. And we were there just caring for kids. But along with that, one of the reasons I stayed was I got connected to an organization working through the organization I was working with to help place girls coming out of forced traffic or forced um, prostitution in the U.S. into safe homes. So we helped manage a couple safe homes. Um, and that's kind of how I got exposed to it. And I got to see the dangers of kids without fathers and the dangers of what happens when kids aren't given options to go to school or when they're sexually abused because they don't have a safe home or because they have to do things in order to eat or whatever. And all of this stuff coming from the Midwest, I grew up around a lot of very conservative, um, not that conservative is a negative word, very conservative Republican type. Well, you know, when you think of like social media of what that it, what that looks like. So many people saying, oh, well, people are homeless because they just don't want to work or they just blame things on race or things like that. And I went to this area of like, no, it is not because these people don't want to work or they don't want to have good lives. It's because they can't and people aren't doing anything. And it kind of was mind shattering. And so then I went back, I ended up going back for another semester at school. And while there, I stayed connected to that organization and they were actually working in Cambodia as well. And while there, I found out about child sex trafficking, and that just broke my heart. And uh, I actually kind of jokingly applied for a job for one of the positions in Cambodia, which I was not qualified for. And like multiple other people had applied, and they were much more qualified than me. And they're like, well, we still want to put you through the interview process just so we can have you on record, like for the future. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. So um, I worked my tail off. They gave me like this work project where I had to coordinate with people remotely. And at the end of the like, four month interview project, um, they actually decided that, like, Hey, we actually think you're way more motivated and you're a really great worker. We'd love for you to come to Cambodia. And so I did.
I want to hear about the experiences, the work you were doing yeah. in Cambodia and, and elsewhere in Asia, and the experiences that you had in addressing the challenges of sex trafficking mm. in that region of the world. Before I get there, I just want to ask, why did you care? This is a problem yeah. that is, it's happening in Omaha right now. Right now, we know it happens in Omaha and we know it's happening across America. And still, there's plenty of people that are unaware of that or maybe just don't care. So it would be really easy for you just to have turned your eyes mm -hmm. to something else. So why? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's quite a few reasons. Um, one is specifically growing up. I mean, many people are aware, like military families or culture is very, how do you say, aggressive or even intense. Like you think of your like classic manly man and how he's allowed to talk, how he talks to women and treats women and things like that. And it, I, that was always around me. And uh, there were some instances in my family that happened with my dad and things like that that made me think of women a certain way. And I, I don't think I truly had respect for them. I think I really viewed them as something for my pleasure. And um, that that's one big part of it. When I started, I mean, so a big part of it, controversial, I know, I ended up accepting Christ halfway through high school, becoming a Christian. And that really changed the way I viewed women and people in general. It wasn't just about myself. And I don't think that's the only factor. But as I grew older and started to see the value that women are equal to men, and like I, there I know many women who are much smarter than I am, much more motivated. I also know women in CrossFit who are much stronger than I am. Um, but the more I grew up seeing that, I realized, wow, how how is it that women can be treated this way? And I had in high school, a lot of my closest friends were actually girls more than I had really close guy friends. And a couple of them had been sexually assaulted, whether that be by an uncle or anything. Or I saw how they were talked about and felt pressure. So they reverted to, you know, self-harm and things like that. Not that men didn't have that as well, but I, I didn't see that growing up as common. Yeah. So that really affected me. And then going to college, I, uh, was really, really concerned about that, about how women were treated on college campuses. And I started getting involved with people. I went to a couple of parties and saw how awful it is there. And I um, saw people like women drugged and new women who were drugged and things like that. And it just grew on me over the years. And so when I went to Sacramento and I heard, saw even how much worse it was and how much more likely a woman is to be trafficked or not even kidnapped or anything like that, but be considered like a, a throwaway kid where they're not running away, but no one cares that they're gone. And so they get coerced or brainwashed into selling themselves. It, ju it just broke my heart and I knew something was wrong and something had to be done because if, if I saw this and was hurt and I said, well, this is bad, but I just went back to college and did nothing, then I was just a part of the problem because I knew it existed. So um, actually a quote by William Wilberforce if you know who that is, he uh, was one of the leading, he was the leader of abolishing slavery in England. And uh, he took, it took him over 40 years. And, uh, but something he said, now that you know the atrocities that are happening, you can choose to look away, but you can never say that they didn't exist. And so I had to, I had to choose whether I was going to just look away and pretend like I'd never seen it, which is a part of the problem, or if I was going to do something. And so 
when I had the opportunity to, I did. And another thing in Sacramento, I was helping with after school kids programs and, you know, everyone says they love kids. No one can say they hate kids, like classic political move. It's for the children, like you're going to win votes. But there I was, I got to work alongside women coming out of forced prostitution in the safe homes. I would walk them to the grocery store just so they could have like safe interaction with men and see that not all men treated them a certain way. Um, but through that, I get to have relationship with actual what we'd label as victims and saw them not as a victim, though, but as a person and hear their experiences and realize this could have happened to my sister. This could have happened to my mom. And then growing up, even hearing from my mother of things that happened to her when she was a child, she was sexually abused um, by a relative. And um, yeah, so a lot of the so many things came together. Um, but at one at some point I just said, I can't not do something. And that transition then into mm -hmm. going to Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a little bit about what you learned there and what you experienced. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cambodia is nothing like America. <laughs> That's the first thing. I mean, I knew that growing up in the family I did and the things I get to see. But yeah, I mean, I just like to explain it in an instance. I remember the first time I landed down in Cambodia. So this is my first time traveling internationally by myself. I booked a plane ticket. It was nuts getting to because I had to fly from South Dakota to um, San Francisco, San Francisco to Vancouver, Vancouver to Guangzhou, China, Guangzhou, China to Cambodia. And I land and I have no idea what's happening. There's no English. No one speaks it. I walk out and people kind of point me around. I get a visa. Um, they stamp me and they push me out and then I'm in this, I walk out of the airport in instant humidity. So I just left America, like it was May, but it wasn't hot. It was South Dakota and I land and it is 102 degrees with 95% humidity. And I'm like, where am I? And there's palm trees everywhere and just every taxi driver in the world is attacking me. And then I see one other lady, she picks me up and from the organization and drove me to where I was going to stay. And driving past these huge government buildings. And it, at first it was kind of like, wow, this is like their Washington, D.C. And I, at the time, even though I grew up the way I did, I still was kind of raised to believe that, you know, like the U.S. is the right hand of God type of thing. Dad being military, all these things, the U.S. is very important to my family. And so I'm there, I'm like, wow, this is great, blah, blah, blah. But I also see like people sleeping in gutters everywhere along the street in front of the Capitol buildings and there are armed vehicles everywhere and barbed wire fence. And then I'm like, this kind of reminds me of a communist picture. And it's not, it's quote unquote, not communist, but, or a dictatorship, but it kind of is. And so I drove and got to my place and I was just so over, like, I couldn't sleep. I was like, I don't even know what's happening. And then that next day, I actually went straight to the village I was working in, which is just, just north of Phnom Penh just like 15 kilometers. It's like a 20 minute drive. And the city never really ends, but it's called, it's in a, well, I won't say the name of the village because that's for security reasons for them. But it used to be one of the number one traffic cities in the world, child traffic cities specifically, girls and boys ages four to 12 year old. So people from all over the world would come there to purchase and rape children. And so while there, I'm seeing all these children and it's super fun and happy and there's paintings because this organization has really transformed the community. Uh, and then I'm like, so, you know, tell me a little. And they're telling me, and they're like, well, you know, all those kids, they're in our program because they've all been rescued from being raped. And I can remember none of them even came up to my chest. And they're so small and 
I learned a lot in the country right now. There's a lot of backlash because CNN actually did a little bit of a documentary over that area and they claim that it's all a lie. Uh, and actually some organizations I worked with at the time have come out and said that child sex trafficking is mostly gone due to their, or according to their studies. And to be fair, according to their studies, yes, but their studies really aren't encapsulating of the whole country and what's happening. It's really being forced underground. But what I came to find is I moved to this country that's a Buddhist country. I thought it was going to be super peaceful because, you know, here everyone, they're thinking of Tibetan Buddhism, really peaceful, really calm, relaxing. But living in this country, the Buddhism, and maybe it's not pure Buddhism, um, but it was very oppressive culture. They, um, the monks were actually usually the ones starting riots and they would go around and they were oppressive towards women to get what they needed. And children are seen as, unless, unless you're a wealthy person's child or unless you're high enough educated to add to society, you're seen as a parasite on the culture. Um, same with women, unless they provide children for their husband or whatever, they're just parasites in this community. And I saw how the government isn't doing anything to change that there. The government is extremely corrupt and, I started learning a lot about this because our organization that I worked with did a lot of undercover work and things like worked with other organizations that did undercover work. And the more and more you find out, the longer I was there, the more I found out how much more corrupt everything was. Like we might find a brothel with underage children, but we have to get permission to raid it. And so the people we have to contact, so many police officers are paid off by brothel owners that they'll leak it to the brothel owner before they leak give it up in command to get permission. So by the time we get there, they're gone. Or there's times where we would go to a raid a brothel and we get stopped by the police officers, even though we had permission, because it turns out there's a government official in there buying sex and they let them go out before we could raid. So many of those cases time and time again kept happening. And um, it made me question, well, what in my own country is like this and what don't I know about? But it really opened my eyes to the darkness that can happen, especially when people don't care. People may know and may say they care, but at what point will people do something? You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
you're painting this terrible, terrifying, traumatic picture, but it's over there. Right. But just then you suggested, what don't I know about mm -hmm. America? Yeah. And I don't want to jump too far ahead from oh, totally. Cambodia and Asia and your experience there, but follow up that comment. What did you learn that made you wonder about what life is really like in America? Yeah. Well, the organization I worked with actually does a lot of stuff in the U.S. And I did a lot of digging on this as well. There's some documentaries that have come out about this. Um, there's one called Nefarious, Merchant of Souls. Uh, it goes through kind of the world and then ends up back in the U.S. and how it's on us. But the first thing I looked to was, um, I don't know if you know, there's this thing called the U.S. Trafficking in Persons Report that comes out every year by the U.S. government. And at first glance, you're like, oh, well, we're tier one. We're the highest, so we must be doing really well. Um, but when you read the definition of tier one, tier one doesn't actually mean you're doing well against fighting trafficking. It just means that the government of that country is meeting the minimum requirements required by the TVPA's minimum requirements for being a tier one. But in the fine print, it says, but this does not mean that human trafficking isn't bad or growing. It just means the government is technically meeting the minimum requirements to battle it, which pretty much means nothing. It just, it, the more regulation doesn't always mean anything. Um, so Cambodia, at the time I was there, had actually dropped down to this tier one, tier two, tier two watch list, and tier three. Tier three basically means you're doing nothing. Tier two watch list is you have some things in place to meet the minimum requirements or attempt to, but you have such a high percentage of trafficking, it doesn't matter. Tier two means you're trying and you're doing decent. And then tier one means you're meeting the minimum requirements. So America was a tier one. So I was like, oh, well, that's no big deal. But the more digging you see is the more you realize it just how it's just a lot more organized. It's a lot harder to find. In Asia, I went to Cambodia and I could go out on the street and I could, if I went up to some Cambodian man and said, hey, I want to buy a child for sex, that would probably happen very quickly. It'd be pretty easy. And I probably would not get arrested. It was obvious there's prostitution on the streets, children on the streets prostituting themselves. You could go into karaoke bars. That's changed a little. They're now tier two. But you think of like movies taken in Europe. It's very high organized crime. But most of those countries are tier one countries. It's just organized and hard to find. And from what I found is that's actually really similar to the U.S. It's not as mafia based, I would say, from what I found, but it's it is highly organized. I mean, a couple of years back, I remember there was a semi truck that got pulled over and arrested in Nashville, Tennessee. And it turns out there was a, or a group of semis going through. One got caught and had about 25 to 30 girls in the back and they would drive to truck stops and the girls would go out and go to truck drivers and sell themselves. From my own experience and knowing girls who have been in forced prostitution, a lot of it a lot of times does not start as kidnap or something like that, but it starts in this um, culture where women who have are considered of no value, maybe they start dating a guy and men are trained on how to do this. There's actually a book out there that is sold on like how to basically be a pimp and how, or how to pimp out a girl, I think is the name of the book. And this trafficker actually goes through how he does it in order to help other people do it. And it tells you what kind of girl to pick. It tells you, how you should treat them and there's what's called the honeymoon phase and you love on them and you give them gifts and you take them away from any group that they have any family you try and get them away from that and then eventually slowly over time well hey maybe you can do this because we're low on money or maybe you can do this and eventually it becomes abusiveness and things like that and then 
they always throw that honeymoon phase back in there. And so the girls I actually worked with in Sacramento, um, talking to them, they, a lot of it started out as they were just dating this guy. And it turns out five years down the road, he was actually, he was actually pimping out like 20 girls. Um, they just never knew. There's a couple of people to speak to that. There's this lady named Annie out of, um, Las Vegas. And she actually was from Minneapolis area and ended up there. And she was working as a, as a escort service. And she talks about how a lot of girls in the escort service are actually selling themselves as prostitutes. And the more I got into it, I'm, I mean, this is, I don't have the statistics on this anymore, but it used to be back in 2012 that around 65% of child pornography in the world was coming out of the U.S. Uh, and things like that. And people say they don't know how this could be happening. But I mean, last year in Council Bluffs, an arrest happened where someone was trafficking kids out of their house. And I think a lot of it is a lot of times we don't want to look because we don't want to get into other people's business. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. But if we look hard enough, it is here. And there are a lot of overlooked people in our communities. But a lot of times, I mean, coming as a white male, a lot of times the people who have the power or the ability or whatever, they don't do it because how it doesn't affect them specifically. So you, you spent how long in Cambodia? A little over a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you return, still mm-hmm. working with the same organization? Um, so I spoke for them and I did a lot of awareness for them, but I actually went back to school. So Okay. Um, and that's when you went back to school and you studied leadership and international relations. Right. Yep. And so having had this experience in Cambodia and returning to uh, go back to school, what were your intentions and, and what have you been doing yeah. sort of since then? Yeah. So I came back. I mean, part of it was while I was there, a lot of um, my personal beliefs led me to come back. I thought I needed more training. So actually at my school, getting my degree, I have way more credits than I would ever need for my degree. I probably should have just stayed for another year and come out with like three bachelors or something um, because all my credits from K-State and Manhattan Christian College at the time and coming to Ozark, I also didn't follow any of their tracks. I just studied whatever I wanted to study under whichever professors. And through that, I um, went on a couple seminars and residencies to New York City and I went to Madison, Wisconsin for a summer and and I went and worked in Portland as well for did a residency there with an organization. And basically, I've been really getting um, involved in – I got really involved in community development. And what does that really mean? I still think it's kind of a hard question because I, I think what I learned from my degree in studying cultures and my time in Cambodia is models don't really work. Ideas, concepts, um, those kind of things can – go from place to place, but I think each thing has to be individualized, which is obviously difficult. And some models may be able to be transferable to a point, but I don't think there's any one model that works for every culture everywhere. Um, and so I actually now I'm working for a coffee roaster, <laughs> but one of my reasons and passions for that is um, I've seen how the coffee industry is very, is full is full of a lot of passionate people, a lot of artistic people, a lot of really educated people um, who got really sick and tired of what America expects out of them. And um, But through that, they're able to do a lot more. And I personally have seen a lot of the potential for community development and community empowerment even um, through the space of a coffee shop. 
but also on the other side, having in Cambodia, I got to go to a bunch of coffee plantations and see how people are treated. So as a barista, empowering and educating people in better practices and especially consumers, if they begin to know and care, even that start of buying a cup of coffee from a place that cares about who they're affecting can start to make a huge difference. They sell spiced wine and chocolate around the corner store. Never was the temptation small. The first drink that I bought for you was bitter, black, and sweet, like the flames crouching low at work as a barista not just because it's a cool side gig mm. but because you see the lines between coffee farms coffee shops coffee customers and the socio-political aspects of trafficking right how does that vision become real as it were for the various people like consumers or people being trafficked or communities in general how does that vision become tangible and visible and real yeah i mean so another part of what I saw in Cambodia, and um, my wife actually worked in the Philippines and India doing anti-trafficking work as well, is um, outside of sex trafficking, the village I worked in, on one side was a huge string of garment factories, and on the other side was brick factories and rice fields. And majority of those people, you Americans wouldn't look at it and say they're slaves because they're not in shackles or whatever, but a lot of them, maybe they took out loans and those people instantly called the loan back um, with an absurd amount of interest, which is completely unpayable, especially when you think about the average wage in Cambodia, yearly salary is around $1,000. So they have to work in these places to pay back the person, but the interest is so high, they'll never be able to pay it back. Uh, so they're working seven days a week, 18-hour days, that type of thing. And the same is true on a lot of coffee plantations. A lot of studies have shown that there's a lot of children on coffee plantations picking, and it's really hard to regulate that, especially when children aren't given a voice in those countries. And so even from a consumer who, if they know that their coffee roaster or coffee shop um, is buying beans or buying roasted beans, either way, from a place that's looking to go fight that, there's a, lo a lot of ways. I mean, the trend a couple of years ago was to buy fair trade. Fairtrade Organic, or there's something called Rainforest Alliance, and a lot of those other things. And those are those can be really good things. I don't want to hit on those hard. Uh, I think Isaiah talked a lot about that in his interview with you months back. But with that, that can also be expensive. So a lot of times on our coffee bags, we won't have something that says Fairtrade Organic or Rainforest Alliance, but you can be assured that whatever we're buying is fair trade or quote-unquote what now a lot of people call direct trade, which is in itself a very confusing term because it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. We are doing as much as we can to make our coffee as traceable back to the farm. And by knowing the traceability, we can then know what kind of standards they have for treating their 
employees and workers and wages and livability and quality of life. And so, I mean, for instance, our Honduras coffee right now, Jason and Isaiah text with the farmer and the guy who brings the coffee to us. So we know how much he is directly getting paid, even though we're working through an importer, which a lot of people harp on, but because we know how much he's getting, we know that the we'll, we'll pay whatever it is on top of that after we negotiate with the farmer to pay to get the coffee to us. So we're not paying some importer for some coffee that they bought and then we don't know how much they're paying the farmer. We know how much that is. And we're trying to do that anywhere we do in the world. And for the most part, we can trace that back to how much that farmer is getting. Um, and then a lot of our coffees, actually most of them are what could be considered fair trade organic, but because we don't pay for the certification, then we don't get it. And even a lot of farms, it may be too expensive. It may take them years to pay off. So they don't get it, but they're actually practicing the same way. So just traceability is extremely important. I mean, even the wine at our shop, we're working with a distributor and importers that it is always traceable back to the vineyards and uh, wineries and all these things, knowing that the practices are good. Because ultimately, I feel like, (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of people who cost is more important to them. So they want the cheapest thing they can get. And I, I mean, that's the American way, right? Like make more, have a better life. Who cares about the rest? But I, I, I would like to think that a lot of my generation and generations before me, that's changing and that quality over quantity is more important. It reminds me of the story about Apple iPhone and the suicides happening in the plant. And most people don't buy an iPhone thinking, I'm really worried about the workers who put this together. Most of us are worrying about what carrier can we go to to get the phone for free. And so in some way, it feels as if traceability and trackability for you are part of a continuum of community development. It's one thing caring about the farmer and the price they get paid because that has direct implications for broader issues in that place. But also we here, when I buy my coffee and when Omaha is receiving my money, I need to be aware and Omaha needs to be aware of what are the consequences of those choices. I completely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, even like sometimes people and usually it's an older generation that will come in and they'll say, oh, my goodness, it's two fifty for a cup of black coffee and it comes with a free refill. That's so expensive. And it's like, well, <laughs> you got to remember, like we're buying from farms that support better quality of life, that probably provide clean water, that are taking care of the families of their pickers, that are getting paid good wages. And then we do our best to make it the highest quality tasting coffee you can with absurdly expensive equipment and then hours of training. And then on top of that, we're also trying to provide living wage for a barista and other staff. So when it comes down to it, 250 is really cheap. And in most cities, like back in Portland, you can black coffee sometimes like $5 a cup. When you think about that, how how expensive is a $2.50 cup really in the long run? I mean, there's companies like it's it's interesting because back in the day, Nike really got slammed for this kind of stuff. But in the last couple of years, they've really, really been up and coming. But now that it's caught on, all people remember is the news that was like 10 or 15 years ago, even though they are now one of the better brands. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I think what we buy and what is behind what we buy really shows a lot about who we are. I mean, for example, 
my wife needed new shoes and she was, uh, we both wear Nikes and a lot of their brands, but we're constantly trying to improve that and go to quality. And um, so we ended up spending weeks doing research just on what are good quality shoes that may be more expensive, but they support some people. And there's this company out of um, Europe. Uh, I think they, most of their shoes are made in Brazil though. Uh, they're called Vija uh, and their soles are recycled. Uh, they take recycled water bottles and turn them into the rubber soles and they use organic rubber farms that are like well-maintained and they're not just ripping down rainforests and it provides high quality and they only use recycled leather. They're not killing animals, things like that. And it was expensive for these shoes, but it's, we also know that it's doing so much more than just, unfortunately, right now, buying a pair of, of Adidas. Like, Adidas is not doing well in that arena. Um, and so, and a lot of other brands. I don't, um, there's no specific brand that I'm like, think is better than everyone else. Maybe Vija. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, even as a company, I think that's super important. And so not only raising the quality of living for people around the world, but here as well. So something we're committed to at Archetype that I know Isaiah has said to many people is technically he could pay below minimum wage because we also make tips, but he won't because he thinks that's part of his responsibility as a business owner. And I would agree if I ever run a coffee shop, which a goal someday would be to do something similar um, that supports community development, but also giving money back to your community and allowing your space to be used for community things and training up people who can then go out and do that in their own community where maybe I can't go do it. I think those have to be things we think about if we're going to say we actually care and we want to improve the quality of life. I guess I have two thoughts in two two sort of questions. One is you've mentioned doing the research and putting the effort into being attentive to how we as consumers go about our end of this continuum of consumption. But the thought that immediately pops into my head is that, of course, for many people here – the bottom, you know, we can think of the bottom 99%, but but there are those that literally just don't have the luxury in American terms to be as responsive as you are to these issues. I'm just wondering systemically, like, how do we change that so that we aren't unwilling and unwitting participants in in this broader social political situation that allows for trafficking? when perhaps we don't have the same wherewithal to be really picky about where we acquire what we need. Right. That's a good question. <laughs> that is that is the question. How do we, I mean, not everything I wear is, you know, fully sustainable or I don't know the traceability of everything I use. I mean. This is why I'm going naked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Um, I mean, there's things I, I think. I think for every person, it's starting small. And I think a lot of the responsibility is, like, as a coffee shop, that is my responsibility to put that information out there. To be like, hey, this is how this affects the coffee world. And clothing brands say, hey, this is how we affect that. Uh, a lot of it, I think, is on businesses and pe- business owners need to step up and take that responsibility for their own industry. Um, but as an individual, I mean, even companies uh, at Archetype, we sell not not making a pitch for archetype, but something we focused on recently is we started selling a s- certain brand of mug that a e- percentage of every profit they make goes to organizations that bring up water quality around the world and education for those types of people. Things like that, even those small things, people own a water bottle. And maybe you spend the same amount on a different water bottle because it does something better. Or maybe you don't go support that one thing that you know is 
supporting really, really bad things. So it's not even a choice of buying more expensive brands that do other things. It might be giving up things you don't necessarily need because they also don't support better quality living and um, they're not anti-trafficking or they're more about profits than they are caring about people because I think capitalism has really destroyed a lot of that for people about caring about others because capitalism is about number one, self. What is next for you in this long journey? You know, we started in Japan and we've traversed all sorts of interesting places and some terrifying experiences. You've learned a lot. You've experienced a lot. What What are you planning next? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, to preface, my my wife and I actually just decided this summer that we're going to commit to being in Omaha for we're going to commit to not looking to leave Omaha for two years. So we're going to be in Omaha for at least two years, maybe longer, um, because we both have just moved all over so much. I mean, since I was in high school, I've lived in a different place per year almost. And so being in one place and actually being a part of a community and seeing what that can look like, not just thinking we know something about being a part of different communities and know what people think. Long term, I mean, if I would like, I love being in the coffee industry and I would love to see how I can use that to impact communities, whether that's how I can do that through international or local. Um, I think something that'd be something interesting about coffee shops is their third places. They're that they're not home. They're not work. They're the place where people gather. And so how can you give that to other communities that don't have that, whether that's training up people who are from other areas that can go there where I can't because maybe it wouldn't be as well received from me or whether that's giving back through that company. Um, but also I would love, I mean, my heart is overseas. I would love to be working with people in the farming industry and importing, exporting, making that better quality. Um, long-term, I think my wife and I would both love to be overseas doing nonprofit work. She's a hairstylist. She also is getting her degree, but we love doing hair and coffee, and those are two things that every country does pretty much. Um, and so we would love to be able to go overseas. And, I mean, the organization I worked for in Cambodia has a hair salon where they train up girls who would be trafficked otherwise to have a career in hair and cosmetology and, as I said, coffees in Asia. But, yeah, I'm not really sure. For now, I'm here, and I just want to know and figure out how I can best help my own community and the people here. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, Download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. My guest today has been Paul Menefee. Paul, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Stuart.
not everything I wear is, you know, fully sustainable or I don't know the traceability of everything I use. I mean, this is why I'm going naked. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>